it was just insane. And I remember once realizing that I had left the office about 11.30 or 12 and I was going to the dealers and I just didn't want to do this. And, but I couldn't stop myself. It was horrible and I was crying. Actually, tears were flowing down my face because I knew I could not stop myself from doing something I didn't want to do. Welcome to the Recovery Edge cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Today I'm sitting with Lionel, who I met at the Happy Trudgers group in Denver. Lionel, uh, can you give us your sobriety date in your home group? Sure. My sobriety date is August 1. 1995, and I have several home groups, Happy Treasures being one, and um, AWOL being another, and Tuesday Night Promises being another, and then I have two um, substance abuse uh, uh, home, home groups, um, Meeting Number One of Cocaine Anonymous and the Sunday Morning Meeting of Cocaine Anonymous. So I cover all bases there. Congrats on 25 years. Does your 25 feel different than your 24? Yeah, it does, because this is a progressive program as well as a progressive disease. And um, you have a tendency, or at least I have a tendency, of learning each year. And, and I have gained experience, but sometimes those things expand. And um, one might find oneself thinking about things that one had not even given any type of uh, thought to as you progress in your recovery. And I remember when I started, they said it's like peeling back an onion. And ultimately that that became true because uh, the person I was 25 years ago, I'm no longer that person, nor the person I was 10 years ago. I'm not that person either. And um, many things have come to fruition as they describe in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that um, remarkable things will happen in your life. And many times it requires going through a lot of pain to get there, but they do happen. And, um, and if you like, I can tell you how I got here, if you're ready for to hear that part of the story. Or yeah, you, I, I mean, I think you're warmed up. You want to go ahead and tell us what <laughs> sure, it was like, what happened, and all that Sure, stuff. and um, well, Lionel, I was born in uh, York County, Virginia, and uh, I never tell my age, so years ago, in the 40s, maybe. Or Maybe. 50s or something. But anyway, uh, it was a small farm in Virginia. I lived with my great-grandmother. My mother was 17 at the time that I was born. And um, I, my, well, my father, I guess, um, disappeared. So um, I had a 17-year-old mother, and here I was. And we lived in my great-grandmother's farm, which uh, had no electricity, no running water, no indoor toilet. And I remember as a child, I learned how to get water out of a well and um, take care of the sanitary issues with the outhouse. And, um, but it was an interesting, interesting uh, development. And then I had another set of grandparents who lived in the city. And by the time I started grade school, I moved in with them. And I could go into a history because the family goes all the way back to Jamestown. Um, and uh, it sort of turned out to be an interesting um, mixture of people, believe it or not, that belonged to the family. And I got a lot out of that, too. Um, ultimately, I went to grade school. And, you know, people often talk about this, and I guess I felt the same way. I, I didn't feel like I really belonged, um, just a little different than everyone else. Um, 
I did have friends and I did do all of the things that boys do, but I still felt a little different. Like, um, I'm not exactly sure. I know I wanted to be Superboy when I was a little kid, and you know that was my big goal in life, to be able to fly around town and do good deeds. And then I wanted to be an archaeologist, and I wanted to be a nuclear physicist and, and a lawyer, which somehow happened. <laughs> and um, I lived in Virginia um, until I was maybe 14 or 15, and we moved to Arizona. And I was there, and then I lived with a Hispanic family for several years, uh, learned Spanish there. And then I went back east to college, and people wanted to know, why are you studying Spanish? And somehow, something said, do it, and uh, that too turned out to be pretty well for me. Um, college was uh, pretty good at the beginning, but at the end, it turned to, I'm not exactly sure what it was. Uh, this was during the 60s, and... Um, tune in, turn on, and drop out. That's what I did. <laughs> you know, I meant, uh, I liked uh, psychedelics, and I did quite a few of those, and I liked marijuana, and I did a lot of that. Um, and then I realized, um, well, I didn't realize anything. I just uh, got a job and moved out of Virginia um, and went to East Stroudsburg. And this is a story of my life, too. I went to East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, and I met the people that I had left in Virginia. The same people were there, and they liked to do the same things they did in Virginia, which was to smoke pot, drop acid, and drink. And it was like, great. And then I moved to Atlanta, and there they were there too. They liked to do the same thing, and i like, boy, this is a great life. My friends are everywhere. Later I moved to Colorado, then I moved to Dallas. And again, all of these people were always in my life. And these were the people I could relate to. And I had a system. If I moved to a new town, I would go to a bar on Monday and Tuesday when it was very slow and I'd get to know the bartenders. And then on the weekend when it was crowded, I was in, made new friends. And I was never really lonely um, because of that. I liked to drink and drug and there were people who liked to drink and drug and there they were. And uh, that was part of my life. And um, again, I moved to Dallas, and then I moved back to Denver, then I moved to Kansas City, spent some time in California as well. Um, one dramatic thing that happened in my life um, was that uh, I was working in Lakewood as a restaurant, assistant restaurant manager, and one night before Christmas in 1977, this guy stabbed me, robbing the, the restaurant, and um, I wound up in intensive care for 12 days and darn near died. I know I darn near died because I rode on um, Flight for Life. That usually tells you something about where you are. Anyway, um, I did that and uh, the restaurant chained uh, then sent me to uh, Kansas City. And I just, I don't know, after that incident, it was pretty traumatic. Uh, a guy with a ski mask and a knife uh, trying to slit your throat and stab you and kill you, you know, that, that sort of makes a difference in one's psyche. So I quit that, and then we went on the road. Uh, some friends, and we were selling mirrors out of the back of a van, and ultimately we started living in the van and drove from, I guess from Denver to Guatemala City through the jungle and 
all throughout cities all over Mexico, every city you could think of, we hit um, from Oaxaca to Veracruz, Merida, all over, uh, Monterrey, Durango, Chihuahua, <laughs> all over. And then we went to, um, through Belize, into the jungle, which is always, I think back on that, talk about peeling an onion, and I think back, they were in Guatemala, in the middle of the jungle, and the police or the army would always stop us and search the van. We had no contraband, but um, getting to this lake, and late in the evening, and people are sitting around the lake with little campfires going on, and these are indigenous people, and um, as a ferry came over, we got our van on the ferry, and we went across this lake. And every time I read an article about um, a ferry <laughs> sinking in some third world country, I think to myself, what the heck was I thinking? But of course, I lived through it, so I guess mm -hmm. it was okay. Mm -hmm. um, I came back to Denver uh, and started selling mirrors here in Denver. And um, I got arrested up in Thornton, and they had a Green River Ordinance, which precluded one from doing peddling. And I went to court, and the judge and the uh, prosecutor were talking, and I didn't understand what they were saying. They were talking legalese. And uh, fortunately for me, because I had been stabbed and damn near killed, I had benefits. And one of the benefits was vocational rehabilitation. So I used the vocational rehabilitation money to go to paralegal school. So I went to paralegal school and finished that, received a degree in paralegal. And then I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, something bad happened. That stabbing was something bad, but something good came about it because... I got an opportunity to go back to school. Now, going back to college where I really screwed up, I got an opportunity to turn all of that around grade-wise. And when I got a good score on the LSAT, I got into law school. But one of the things about that, too, um, is that, um, well, the night before I was admitted to law school, I had a heart-to-heart -heart talk with God and whatever you want to call it, God, Father of Light, Creative Intelligence, whatever it was, whatever it was, I had a heart-to-heart -heart talk, and I promised and made a covenant with this entity or whatever, the spiritual thing, that if I got to go to law school, um, I would do good work. I would do good things for people. I would help feed the poor, and I would just be that type of person. And believe it or not, the next day I was admitted to law school. And it could have been luck, coincidence, that's okay. It doesn't matter. But I'll tell you what did matter. I broke that promise. I broke that promise and what happened during law school, I started going out and I realized, well, the guys with the uh, Mercedes and BMWs and they had all of the great looking women and they had all of the great parties that I was not invited to. So that's what I wanted. I wanted the fast lane. So I broke my promise to God, <laughs> or to whomever, to be in the fast lane. And believe it or not, I got everything you could possibly think of in the fast lane. I had beautiful girlfriends. I had a Mercedes and a BMW. I had nice parties every weekend in my place. Everything was fine. I was doing probably too much of the marching powder but and drinking, and but eventually, it all went up, and it all started coming down. And the coming down part was hard. Um, I found myself um, 
liking drugs and alcohol more than I liked socializing with people. Um, I gave up all of my girlfriends, um, just didn't have time for them. Uh, I wanted to drink and be alone with my liquor and drugs. And um, that became rather um, difficult. And also working, I didn't want to work, I wanted to get high. If I could just get high all day, this life would be perfect. I've got to go to this office and my mentor and law partner would call me in the morning, Lionel, are you practicing law today? And I would give some flimsy excuse about waiting for the cable man. And, <laughs> and this went on and on about the cable man. And if I came to the office, I couldn't stay. And it was just insane. And I remember once realizing that I had left the office about 11.30 or 12 and I was going to the dealers and I just didn't want to do this. And, but I couldn't stop myself. It was horrible and I was crying. Actually, tears were flowing down my face because I knew I could not stop myself from doing something I didn't want to do. And I guess that's one of the things about uh, addiction, alcoholism, doing something that you don't want to do, but you cannot stop yourself. Well, that wasn't enough to stop me, those tears, and I went and I did what I, um, what I normally do, I got drugs. And I started making a lot of money, too. This was another thing that sort of happened, too. I started making a lot of money, so that really enhanced my partying, um, buying too much, drinking too much, um, having people in my life who like to do what I like to do. And, of course, they hung around. And you're very popular when you have drugs and alcohol and a place to party, and it goes on seven days a week. So people were coming over, and on the weekends, they'd stay up the whole night. And the birds would be singing at 6 o'clock in the morning, and I would be depressed and got more depressed and got more depressed. Well, finally, and this, um, this was 1994 that really reached that um, nadir, the low point. And I can remember thinking that I need to stop. And actually, my dealer's 17-year-old daughter mentioned that to me. She said, Lionel, you need to stop. And I admitted to her for the first time, I can't stop. And she said, well, why didn't you get help? She's 17. I'm 42. I, I hadn't figured that out, that I needed help. <laughs> so anyway, I did... Um, go to a hypnotherapist um, with the idea that um, she could help me. And she had pamphlets, AA and CA pamphlets around, but I didn't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, I figured if she hypnotized me, I would be over it. And that didn't, that didn't work. Um, I really wasn't sure about all of this. I, I just wanted control over the alcohol and drugs and not be so paranoid and so whacked out that I can't um, manage my life. That's what I really wanted. And, um, but that didn't happen. And one of the things about socializing with people that uh, do drugs and drink is that they want people around them who are doing drugs and are drinking. And it's very hard to resist the allure of all of the things that I've mentioned the women, the cars, the parties, all of those things. What else was I supposed to do? That was my hobby, drinking and drugging and partying. That, I guess I call that partying. It also made socialization much easier because you meet someone in the bar and you say, hi, do you like to party? And she would say yes, and see, that's it. Simple, very simple. 
Um, so anyway, I went to the hypnotherapist. That didn't work. And then I went to a therapist. She mentioned she had eight years sober. I remember this, and I thought, so what? In my mind, I thought, yeah, okay, what? And they put me on Prozac, and I realized Prozac and alcohol and drugs go well. So I did that. And um, then I went to Vegas um, in December of 1994 and normally we would go to Vegas my brother and I we would um, get a room and liquor and whatever and you know and go to the nightclubs and have a great time and this year I couldn't leave the room I'm just drinking and drugging I don't want to go anywhere and even my parents lived there it was one of the reasons we went during Christmas because they they had retired there and I didn't want to go there either for Christmas dinner I just wasn't I was out of sorts, totally out of sorts. And uh, when I came back, I promised myself, well, I'm going into rehab. <laughs> this is crazy. And my insurance company had some program. They, they had told me about that they were going to open. And then when I came back in um, January of 1995, I figured, well, maybe, maybe I'm making too much of this. Maybe if I just cut down, everything will be fine. So I tried to cut down, and that didn't work. And um, then about April of 1995, um, things had, had really gotten to a low point. My car's in the pawn shop. Um, my dealer has the other car. And um, I guess I had a roommate then who had a vehicle who was letting me use his vehicle from time to time. And uh, I was starting to be, I would think, insane. It's just the... My attitude and outlook on life was strange. I just was strange, very strange. Uh, I had no interest in life itself. I felt like one of the walking dead, a vampire. I only wanted to come out at night, you know? It was just very, very difficult. And um, in the middle of April, about the 17th, I can't remember the exact date, but I know the Oklahoma City bombing occurred. And I had been two days sober prior to the Oklahoma City bombing being uh, broadcast on TV, and I remember watching that on TV, and I relapsed. Two days, I mean, what, what kind of relapse is that? But that was a relapse, a bad relapse for me. And I started all over again, even though I had promised myself I wasn't going to do this anymore, which is big for alcoholic addicts. They promise themselves they're not going to do something, then they do it. And then you feel remorseful about the fact that you've done what you said you weren't going to do. So, so anyway, I... Um, relapsed and I started drinking and drinking again and I got really paranoid from drinking and drugging and, and um, introspective and I would have parties and I would just be apart from everyone just wanting to be by myself even though I wanted everyone to come over and I just didn't couldn't relate I didn't want to talk to anyone I just wanted to be I felt like I was being um, oh incapacitated being somewhat catatonic watching and observing everyone. So anyway, um, toward the end of that month, just of April 1995, um, I was out of control. And I remember it was a Thursday, and I didn't have any money. And I'm, I made a bunch of money in 1994, a lot more than most people will make it all, you know, in, in several years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I went to the bank and I talked the, my banker into 
giving me $800. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. That's one thing, too, about alcoholic addicts. They're very shrewd people. <laughs> so anyway, um, I took the $800 and bought liquor and drugs. Okay, what else? No food, no nothing else, just drugs and alcohol. And um, this was on a Thursday. And by Saturday morning, I was finishing it off, the drugs. And a friend had asked that I, she was having a party. So I went to her party, and um, I guess there were five guys in her, which I didn't pay any attention to at the time. And, um, but they still had drugs and liquor, and you know, so there I was where I wanted to be anyway. And, um, you know, some strange things happened. I suppose one of the things that burned into my mind was, um, well, it was interesting. But anyway, um, about 10 o'clock in the morning, we were there all night, 10 o'clock in the morning, they gave me money to go buy more drugs. And I wound up at uh, my dealer's house, 10.30 on a Sunday morning. This was um, April 30th, 1995. And they were having a party. The party was still going on for the night wow. before. <laughs> that, those are the people I partied with. Okay. <laughs> These were hard partying people. Yeah. And I, I got... The party was going on. There were a bunch of people there hanging out, getting high, running around. And um, so I got higher. I got higher. I took some ecstasy and drank some more and smoked up some more stuff, and bought some more stuff, and actually used my friend's money to continue my party and forgot about my friends. And, of course, I got the dealer to give me... Ah, it was just insane, and my ex-girlfriend was there, and she's the wildest one you could ever imagine, and we left. And then Monday morning came around. Monday morning, May 1st, 1995, came around, and I was sick. And not physically sick, emotionally sick, because I realized what I had done. I had betrayed the bank person who entrusted me with money, my friends who had I left at the party with their money, the, well, the purveyor of goodies. I had taken her substances and not given her any money and promised to do so. And I stayed in my office, which is uh, in the same building that I'm in now in 1995. And I stayed in that office until about 6.30 at night, not knowing exactly what to do. And somehow, some way, um, something said, you need help. And I called the substance abuse hotline, and I got in touch with a guy, and he gave me some some instructions. He said, do two things. Number one, there's a meeting out at West Pines at 7 o'clock. Go. And number two, call your insurance company tomorrow and see what they have to offer. And I did that. This was Monday, May 1st. Now, May 2nd was an interesting day in my recovery. And one of the things, too, going back to this uh, father of light and creative uh, intelligence. I made a covenant this time that I intended to keep. <laughs> and it basically was, okay, I get the point, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And if you allow me to do this, I won't turn back. I will not turn back. I will not let you down on this time. <laughs> 
So anyway, on May 2nd, he decided, it, whatever, decided, well, are you sure, Lionel? Are you sure you want to do this? And I'm, you know, and, and it didn't come at, it wasn't like that. It was like this. About um, 11 o'clock in the afternoon, my dealer's 18-year-old daughter, 18-year-old daughter, and her girlfriend wanted me to go out with them that night to this nightclub and do some ecstasy and hang out. And I said, no, no, I'm not drinking tonight. And then about 5.30, this woman I had known um, uh, called and said she was in a hotel room and she had a bunch of liquor and a bunch of drugs. Did I want to come by and hang out? I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not drinking and drinking anymore. And then about 1 o'clock in the morning, my ex-girlfriend called from the dealer's house saying, hey, she's in jail. You want to come over and hang out with me? And I said, no, I'm not doing that. And I realized today that those were unnatural things for me to say because all three of them I really would love to do. I really would have loved to do. And, but I had made this covenant, and I really meant to stick with this covenant. So anyway, I went to that meeting at West Pines, and I got a taste of recovery. I wasn't exactly sure what it all meant, but... Um, they said, do 90 meetings in 90 days. I said, okay, I can do that. It should cure me. Um, they said, uh, call people. I took some phone numbers, and the next day I called them. To be honest, I just called them. <laughs> I don't know why I called them. I didn't have anything to say except, where's a good meeting? And they were stunned. <laughs> they didn't even know where a good meeting was. <laughs> they had put the name on the list. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I started going to meetings. And um, that proved to be a big change in my life. A big change. Now, I changed my clean date to August because somewhere in those first month or so, I did something I shouldn't have done. Um, I was having trouble sleeping. I was having trouble being agitated. So I tried to use some opiates to calm me down illegally. And it didn't work. I didn't get high. And, um, and I know why, because opiates don't affect me. I don't know why I thought they would, but I had a memory of smoking some opium back in college that really calmed me down, so I thought maybe heroin would do the same thing. But anyway, um, I changed my clean date because of that, so I use August 1st, even though I'm not sure when it happened, but it took me four years to admit to this. I continued with May 1st until I realized that um, all mind-altering substances for me uh, not for everyone, but for me. I have to really relinquish all mind-altering substances. And until I did, I was going to continue to walk around with a lie in my head. And that's contrary to recovery. So anyway, I started going to meetings and listening. And um, at first I thought, this is crazy. There's no way this can work in my life because I'm a nice guy. I don't need to make amends. Yeah, yeah, about God. I see these people talking about this higher power as if it's a cousin or something they know so intimately. <laughs> and I'm thinking, come on, they can't be real. They, this must be phony. And I was also worried that they'd make me stand on the street corner or something. And, you know, as I kept going, which the 90 days proved really, really, really important. Because one of the things I had thought was, well, at the end of 90 days, you'll be able to do something else at lunchtime. You won't have to go to meetings. You can go to the gym or walk around. You won't have to go to meetings. But, well, to be honest, I've been doing 90 meetings in 90 days for 25 years. 
That's a long time. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a long time. And um, as I, I got a sponsor, well, I had one sponsor, but um, we didn't last too long. Well, one reason is because he had not done the work necessary to be a sponsor, but he did say he knew how to stay sober, which he did for about seven years. And then I saw him pushing a cart on, on the mall. And, uh, wow. But he ultimately came back, and he stayed sober about seven more, eight year, more years, and then he died sober. Hmm. Anyway, I got a sponsor and did what they suggested that I do. And one of the other things I did, um, because people in the room suggested things that I needed to do to change my life. I remember this one lady said, well, you know what? If you start putting your pants on with the left leg first, you need to change and try doing it with the right leg first. So that's weird, but I'll try it just to see, you know, see, see how that works out. And it's hard, it's hard to do things to change habit patterns. But anyway, I started going to these meetings and then they would say, well, they need someone to be a GSR. And I was thinking, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I'll do it. And I started volunteering. Well, I didn't have to volunteer a lot. And once they found out I was stupid enough to do things, anything they asked, they started asking a lot. And I started doing it. And it built up friendships and being in groups with other people, something that I'd hated and never wanted to be a part of any group or be around people. But it started working in my life, being around other people who were trying to stay clean and sober and doing things for the group. Not necessarily for me, but I guess the byproduct was that I stayed sober, but doing things for the group and thinking in terms of how can I help others? What, what I'm doing here today benefits other people other than myself and never having had that experience before because it had always been about me. You know, going back to that childhood experience, I had a goal in mind in life. I had a goal. I didn't come out of that farm, <laughs> you know, taking slop down to the um, outhouse and feeding chickens and slopping hogs and picking snap beans and all of those things just to be out here mediocre. My idea was to be great. So anyway, you, well, you see how great I became, a great drunken crackhead. Yeah, that's how great <laughs> I became. But anyway, um, doing these things, I developed uh, new principles in life. And um, things uh, started working out. In fact, before I got a sponsor, things were working so well, I thought, you know, I think I'll get a sponsor if they're this good. And then things didn't work out so good for a long time. They didn't work out right. Now, mostly because whatever it is in the universe, knew how to get my attention. And the way to get my attention was to take all money from me and see how I handled that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, believe it or not, believe it or not, it was hard. It was hard to do, but I had to learn to rely on something greater than myself. And I have so many instances of things that happen that um, are inexplicable in a certain way. I mean, these are the things that happen. I remember this one time that, um, well, I'm a lawyer, of course, but I went to, uh, I was going to a settlement conference. I'm broke. I'm driving my roommate's car. My car's in the pawn shop um, in Boulder. I had to go to a settlement conference, my client, and I knew I'd settle the case, but the problem was I needed the money by Friday, and this was a Tuesday, and I knew there was no way they were going to get checked to me by Friday. It was impossible. 
But, and, you know, and I was sort of worried. I was trying to pray, and I got an answer, and somehow an answer. And some people get answers, some people don't. I'm the one who gets answers. I'm grateful for that. And the answer was very simple. Why did you think about your client instead of thinking about yourself? And I thought, okay. And I started thinking about him, and I went to the settlement conference, and they settled the case for a pretty good sum of money, $100,000. It was a good sum, and I made you know, a good sum of money out of that. Well, the thing that was strange about it was the adjuster came from Idaho, and he brought a blank check. So I got the money on Thursday. Oh, sooner than Friday. <laughs> Very much sooner than Friday. Yeah, that's only happened once in life. You know, I've been practicing for 37 oh. years. That's only happened once. And my law partner, he had never heard of such a thing. <laughs> yeah, so that was one thing. Um, and then I love to tell the story of being foreclosed because of the recession during just before Obama came in. And, uh, and I was losing our home. And one of the reasons I had this beautiful home is because someone in the meeting said, can I build you a house? Which he did, a 4,000 square foot on a 13,000 square foot lot with six bedrooms and five baths and something I could never afford. But he did this for me and I'm gonna lose it. And uh, I was worried. And then something happened. I, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but something inside of me said, well, you know, God gave you this house. He can take it back. And it was sort of a comforting thought. He gave it to me. I mean, what the heck? We have two cars. We can always live in our cars. <laughs> that was another thought. Well, I tried to get her, uh, uh, oh, what was it, with the mortgage company, how to refinance, but a modification of the mortgage. And I'm self-employed. And before, before the recession, you could just say you made any amount of money and they would buy it. But the, here we are in the middle of a recession and they want proof of how much money you're making and it's very difficult for me. I'm self-employed, my earnings vacillate and, and it's just very difficult. But they would send me paperwork after paperwork after paperwork asking for the same information and I sent it all back just like a good AAR. <laughs> Do the right thing, next right thing, next right thing. And um, then they said, well, we can't modify your loan, but we'll give you $3,000 to move. Now, this is in uh, maybe September, October of 2012, I think. And um, okay. Um, and then they sent a letter. Well, it was a package, and I thought it was the moving package, so... I put it on my desk. I decided, yeah, I'll look at it later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the sale date was going to be on January 2nd. So it's closing in on me. And, um, and then the other thing that happened, too, I decided not to worry because I realized worrying was not going to solve this problem. I had to keep working and set that out of my mind and allow whatever's going to happen to happen and allow whatever force there was in the universe that was guiding me to guide me. But remember, it is control and I'm not. I can't make anything go on that's not going to happen. So I was content with that and losing the house was just one of the things that would have to happen in my life. And then um, I got a second letter from the mortgage company, same you know, envelope, and I'm thinking, I don't really want to see this either. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I've resigned myself that I'm going to lose the house, but I'm making money now. Things are coming in, and, but I still don't have enough to 
uh, take care of the mortgage company, you know, the, the, the arrears. And then on um, December 20th of that year, um, I was coming to work and I was coming down this escalator and something overwhelmed me and said, you better open those letters. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to open them because I didn't want to know. So I came down and they had um, granted my um, modification. Hmm. However, this was December 20th. They said, um, you have until December 7th to respond. And I thought, oh my God. Well, I do know how to lie, I'm a lawyer. And um, not really, that's, <laughs> that's a joke. But anyway, <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> anyway, uh, I called the mortgage company and they said, no, don't, don't worry about it. We've extended it until December 21st. That's the next day. Yeah. And we, you have the you, uh, FedEx package, just send it back to us. Man. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, yeah, I don't know why that happened <laughs> that way, but that's the way it happened. You know, and I could tell story after story of those little things that happened in my life that, um, you know, they weren't miracle miracles. I didn't part any seas or walk in any water, but they were sufficient enough to allow me to realize that, um, you know, sometimes I needed to get out of the way in this thing called life and allow life to happen a certain way without me being in control of it. And... Um, yeah, that, that was an interesting one. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. they're very small. These are like God shots. Yeah, someone sometimes. Them, it, yeah, right? well, these are things that are small. I remember, you know, when you cross the street, across the street on Broadway, and you walk across from the um, west side to the east side, you look, there's traffic. And one of the things about the traffic coming from 18th to 17th they drive fast mm -hmm. and for some reason I don't know why they want to drive fast but they drive fast they want to make that light and I was standing there and I was watching this blind person and he had made it into the second lane and the traffic would move the traffic would move the light had just turned green and they just sort of let him walk but the other traffic was coming so fast well, they were coming fast and he was going to walk into that next light lane and I didn't think I had time to get to him to make him stop, you know. In fact, he was already in that, just about in that lane, when something told me, and nothing told me anything. I just did it. I did it. I walked in the middle of the street and held up my hands, and traffic stopped. They just all stopped. That's your Moses moment. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was. Maybe God yeah. just said, "Hey, Lionel, get out there in the middle of the street. No one will run over you." Okay, God, <laughs> I guess you're God. right, <laughs> I guess. But anyway, yeah. those, there are just so many things that have happened in my life like that. Um, and sometimes they give me goosebumps to think about, yeah. you know, how strange they are. Like the time I go to the gas station, I'm broke, I'm buying $8 worth of gas, and the attendant said, nah, your gas is free today. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. That, that never nice, happened. <laughs> that was a nice touch for my life. I was on my way to an H&R hospital and institution meeting, too, so it really helped. It was up in, um, way up north. And, uh, mm. Anyway, um, through the steps, and, and that was another part, um, getting principles out of the steps and um, being able to help other people get sober and, um, you know, working with them and, 
giving them what I had found in the program of recovery. And, you know, many people are turned off about it because of the quasi-religious aspect of it or the fact that the program does talk about a higher power, God or um, However, that didn't frighten me. Getting drunk and high frightens me. <laughs> that really frightens me, mm. especially if you were as bad an alcoholic drug addict, drug addict as I was, you really didn't want to do that ever again. Mm-hmm. And um, in the meantime, I got married. I had never been married. I was 45 when I got married. No, I was 49 when I got married for the first time in my life. And we've been married 22 years, still married. We have two children, a 21-year-old, and she just turned 18, and she wants to be a doctor. And at my age, I don't know if I'll make it. But anyway, we'll, we'll probably get there at graduation in a walker or something. <laughs> um, so what does recovery mean for, you know, for everyone? For everyone, everyone is in recovery and they all have the opportunity. It's sort of a very open society of people. It's not a cult, it's an open society of people who have found a way of living which counteracts addiction and alcoholism. It counteracts it. And we meet together as a group to reinforce that which we know to be true. And we've learned, at least as I can see it, that separating oneself from the group has dire consequences for many, or most. I shouldn't say all. Some people can come to a meeting once a year to pick up a chip, and they're pretty happy with that. And there are people like me who have to go nine times a week because I have problems. I <laughs> have problems in my head. I have problems with self-seeking, selfishness and wanting things that I really don't need. Um, So it's been good to be a part of the program. Um, And as I said, it it has um, wonderful things that have occurred in my life, and um, I get to pass that on to my children. And I remember a couple of things happened with my son. Uh, Twice he found um, wallets on the bus and he brought them home, and we contacted the owners of the wallets, and um, sort of tearful, but you know that's the kind of environment he's in because of AA. You know wow. that's the kind of environment, mm-hmm. and um, you know those things make me proud of him. But it's also because of the program of, of having a program of honesty and thinking about others. And those people probably needed the money much worse than I did. And um, I think that, um, you know, I'll continue on this thing. And the other thing is spiritual development as well as getting to know oneself. Now, I've often said that, um, you know, when, they, when you graduate from high school or college, they do not say, oh, by the way, this is how you have a good life. And this is what you can do to have a good life. They give you a diploma, say, go out there, (laughs) do what you can, Mm -hmm. you know, but uh, in this program of recovery, it sort of offers um, logical and realistic uh, solutions to the problem of how to live a good life. And also how important it is to think of others versus um, being so concerned about um, oneself, which is not to say 
that we shouldn't take care of our lives and take care of our families and even work hard and even try to be successful. But we don't do that at the expense of others. And uh, at least for me, that does not become a part of it. And even in the law, which is adversarial, I don't want to work against the other side. I want to work with them to resolve a problem. And I find that in thinking that way, the problems are resolved, generally in a favorable position for my client, generally. And, um, hmm. you know, those types of things are, are just um, something I've learned through the program. And uh, another thing, um, this happened long ago when I was first in the program, um, a client, I did some work for a mortician or funeral home and the owner of the funeral home um, was in jail anyway the I guess the manager of the funeral home called me on a excuse me on a Tuesday they wanted him out of jail by Thursday and they gave me some money to go to court and get him out of jail well that sounds well and good but I didn't know why he was in jail I didn't know which judge put him in jail I didn't know anything except that he was in jail. And it was in Adams County. And I prepared a motion for early release because they needed him for this funeral on Friday, this big funeral that they had. And I had a motion and I went up there and I was sitting there in the courtroom, in a courtroom. I just walked into a courtroom. I didn't go to the courtroom. I went mm -hmm. to a courtroom and I sat there. And I had this motion, and I gave it to the clerk, and I sat there. And I was sort of praying about, I guess I was doing the serenity prayer, and I was just sitting there. And the judge called me up to the podium. He said, Mr. Hobson, what is it that you want? And I explained what I wanted. He said, well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Hobson, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> he said that to me. I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it. So he got out of jail. And um, I don't know why he did it either. I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Just like my mortgage, I wouldn't have done it. You know what they did with that mortgage? They cut my mortgage payment in half, gave me a balloon note on the mortgage, which will be due when I'm dead. There's no way I'm going to live that long. <laughs> I mean, you know, so my mortgage now is less than what you'd pay for a nice two-bedroom apartment in Lodo, in, in that large house. <laughs> right. Yeah. So anyway... Um, it's been a wonderful experience. I've met wonderful people. I've hopefully I've been able to help other people um, gain this thing and to look at um, life in a much different perspective. Learning how to give and learning a lot about spirituality and learning a lot about things that I had no clue existed. And for me, the idea of recovery and the process enables me to expand my mind much better than drugs did. I thought they were expanding my mind. I guess it seemed that way. But to expand my mind in a much different way. And uh, I know there are promises which disclose that type of uh, things that will happen in your life. Um, for example, um, intuitively knowing how to handle situations that used to baffle you. As I mentioned about the car incidents, about the blind man. I didn't think that through. I didn't have time to think that through. Mm -hmm. I just knew, I knew without knowing what to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, there are some things that are just, you know, once I lost my um, mailbox key 
and um, for this for this building and the mailbox key is like $250 and I lost it and I wasn't sure where I lost it but I know it was in the grocery store talking to my brother on the phone and then the next day I couldn't find the key and I was upset because I hate losing anything anyway and called my wife and told her to look on my caddy in the in the closet she looked and she couldn't find it and I thought well and she didn't look good enough so I went home and then when I was standing there looking I realized it was at the grocery store well I had already called the grocery store the girl had already looked in the lost and found she didn't mm -hmm. see it but I knew it was at the grocery store so I went to the grocery store and asked the lady at the customer service to look again and she looked and said sorry it's not here and I said, well, thank you. And I turned, and then there were some people from the um, Las Delicias restaurant, and they were there, and I started speaking with them. We were hablando en español. And then the girl behind the counter said, well, wait a minute. Let me look in this one other place. And she came back about 15 minutes later with my key. And then I realized that she had to go through the safe in the office with all this stuff in the safe wow. to find my key. And I don't know why she did it. I don't know why she did that for me, except for one simple thing. I didn't get mad at her. I didn't get to give her any reason to feel upset that it was her fault that I had lost my key. I didn't cuss at her. I just thanked her for looking. Hmm. And she went out of her way to find that key for me. You know, And that was a good thing. That was a wonderful thing. Um, there was something else that happened like that too. Um, a lot of things that like that have happened in my life. So, a lot of it has to do with how you treat people and how you think about certain things and realizing that losing the key, I mean, it was $250, was going to break me. Um, but still, I wanted to find the key and mm -hmm. she found the key for me. And um, that was an interesting thing. Um, and I felt very thankful, you know, for that happening. You know, it's one of those things that sort of sticks with me in my heart. Well, why would she do that for me? Oh, another thing, too. Um, I'm in this office now, which is on the 10th floor. And prior to this, I was on the 12th floor. And I was officing with some other people. And one day in October, they said, well, you know, we're going to terminate your lease and because we want this office space. And... Um, so I'd have to move in November. And I was like, Phew. I was frightened. <laughs> well, I've been in this building since 1983. Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's a long time. And all of a sudden, you've got to find a new place. And I was like, oh, my God, what will I do? You know, this is a Friday evening. They're telling me this, and I'm upset. Well, yeah, I'm upset. Yeah, I was upset. You know, just the idea of change that's, that so quickly, having to deal with it. Um, so anyway, I was walking out the building, and there's this bridge over here, and I was going through the door, and these two women, who I assume were lawyers, were coming through the door as well. We were all leaving at the same time. I said, hey, by the way, do you guys have any empty office space? I need an office. I said, well, we'll look and see. And I said, well, thank you. And I left. And, you know, Monday morning they called me and said, well, yeah, we have some space. That's why I have the space here. Now, they didn't know anything about me. But the one thing they knew from, from being an AA, they knew my demeanor. They knew that. They knew that. I was not the type of person to walk around the building angry 
regardless. You know, you win a case, you lose a case, you have money, you don't have any money, but you don't have to take that out on other people because those things always resolve themselves. So anyway, I got the office space and I didn't have to struggle or, you know, go through all sorts of machinations. It just occurred. So, you know, there's this thing where you suddenly realize that God is working in your life. God is doing for you what you can't do for yourself. So anyway, all of this has made me teary-eyed, so I'm going to stop right here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Lionel, for sharing your story here. Just one more question, though. Yes, sir. Um, If you could give yourself a piece of advice in that first year, looking back, what would that be? In the first year? Um... You know, actually, I did what I was supposed to do. I just did what I was supposed to do. And I'll tell you one thing, too. I tried to go to the nightclub, and I realized, ah, that's not going to work. <laughs> you know, because that's where I'd gone before. You know, I was good good at going to nightclubs, and I realized, well, that's not going to work. Um, I try not to have any relationship, but I did. I did have a relationship with my wife, and that was sort of on and off because mm-hmm. I had to concentrate on recovery. But doing what people suggested, and I guess I'm sort of challenge-oriented, and I'd go to meetings, and people would talk about things, and I'd say, well, how do they know this? And they seem to be carrying on this meeting within a meeting. They're talking about things, and they're picking up what the other person is talking about, and they're saying, well, on page 85 of the big book, I'm like, how the hell do they know that? How do they know it's on page 85, and how do they know that related to this conversation? And I wanted to know. I wanted to know. So that was a big part of it, too, wanting to know exactly what they knew. And as they said, it's a program of attraction. So I was attracted to the fact that they knew. They knew how to stay sober. They knew how to be happy. And I had no idea. So, Mm. yeah. So that was my first year. So if you could sum up your story in a sentence or two. Well, I liked um, vodka straight. And I liked cocaine. And I liked beautiful women. Fast cars good parties and um, they didn't serve me well and then I found a new way of life that serves me well thanks Lionel for sitting down and sharing your experience strength and hope with the recovery edge cast Lionel's been one of my favorite voices in the rooms uh, for several years now and I'm really happy he got to sit down with me and uh, share his story Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Remember, you can find us at recoveryedgecast.com, also on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time.